I came in young enough that I got to see how it was done before technology took over. But I was still young enough that I got to grow with technology in this business. When we work a case, we always think, how can the other side discredit what we're doing? And we close those doors on them so they can't. We have a mystery about us. And that mystery comes with a benefit of people want to talk because it's cool. People don't care what you know until they know how much you care about them. The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and get started. So for those of you guys that are a little bit new, this is not a typical support call. Typically, we're talking about your deals, whatever you have going on, whatever questions you have. But uh, this is a skill session. And what that means is that it, it has a theme. And tonight, we're talking about private investigations. We're talking about staying safe, what to do whenever we're in kind of a squirrely situation. And uh, I've got big Paulie with me. So Paul Dillon is a good, good friend of mine. He and I have worked together for probably five or six years now uh, across different things. And Paul is known as one of the top PIs in the country. So he's worked, I can say this, I did make sure that I could say this. He's worked on Whitney Houston cases. He, he's worked on cases with Michael Jackson, a civil case with Michael Jackson. He's known as one of the top investigators in the country. And so we're really, really happy to have him here. There's a big other list of A-type celebrities uh, A-list celebrities that we are not going to mention because they're not passed away and we're not able to. So, but I'm really excited about this. And so really what this came down to, I've been thinking about this for a while, but me and Polly just worked on a new, a new case together where I foreclosed on a house. We couldn't get the guy served for eviction. And then it ended up, he was trying to sue me. And Polly really took it a long way to, I guess, staving all of that off. Okay. And so this is a valuable thing. Like sometimes we don't need an attorney. We just need like a third party that understands how to work things and can get things done. So, uh, Paulie, man, appreciate you being with us. Hey, Brad, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think, I think, uh, yeah, we've probably been working probably closer to seven years, I think. Well, I, I guess so. I guess the first case, Paulie tracked down a deed. This was on the Portland deal, like three or four states over from a wife demanded in the divorce decree to sign a deed to ex-husband that had passed away, but she hadn't done it and was trying to hold the deal hostage. And so he threatened her with jail time. That whole thing blew me away because if you remember, it was just like a shack. I think it might even been a trailer. I mean, the property was definitely where I think all that value was at on that one. But where she moved to, man, it was like, I don't want to say a mansion, but it was definitely over 4,000 square feet. And just, a, it was like, 
whoever she married had money. So she definitely literally left the trailer park for uh, her, her real life Beverly Hills hillbilly story. <laughs> That's that, fantastic. I'll never forget that case. I thought I was going to get killed in Kentucky. I really truly did. Well, <laughs> that was I'm glad a little of nowhere. Cool. All right. So we're going to get into this and, and we're going to talk about uh, a few different things that we've kind of outlined. But as usual, guys, we've got, if you have a question, just virtually raise your hand and, and we'll definitely get, get to you. Uh, but our, our goal is to provide value, like always. So Paul Mann, for those that don't know you, just kind of go through your background, how you got involved in this and, and kind of what you do. Definitely, definitely. It's an interesting story. So I am the director of investigations for the Dillon Agency. We're a multi-state investigation company. We've got offices in California. Um, We have two in California. We have three in Tennessee. We have two in Mississippi, one in Texas, one in Arkansas, and soon to be one in Alabama. Tennessee's where we're located, where our hub is, is kind of a great place. We're able to get all over the country pretty quick, relatively easy. We are a full-service investigation company. So what does that mean? We have different verticals within our agency. We do the, we have people who do the domestic stuff. We have people who do criminal defense. We have people that their job is to find people. A wide range, I guess you could say. I started helping out in, in the, the wholesale side of, of real estate with Brad. Brad, we were introduced through a, a former... One of my client, your attorney. That's, That's right. how we came to know each other. And... From there, it's just you've thrown other people my way and other people I've met. It just kind of grew. And next thing you know, I've got clients in your space that are popped like kind of scattered throughout the country. How did I get into this? That's a, it's a very interesting story. One made for Hollywood, perhaps. I was a very bad juvenile delinquent. <laughs> and um, I went to juvenile hall at 14, got arrested my freshman year. And my probation officer, when I met him for the first time, he says, what do you want to do when you grow up? So I very sarcastically said, I want to be a police officer because, well, yeah, I mean, that was the best way to get on his good side. Right. So um, he made me become a police explorer. And I started there and I thought these were the nerdiest group of people I've ever met in my life. And then I soon realized that a lot of them thought the way I did. And I started just coming from the background I came from with they had a, uh, a metro unit or what most departments would call a vice detectives unit. So they would say, hey, we want you. Here's money. Go into that store go buy some alcohol, cigarettes, or some pornography. So I'd go in, I'd, I'd kill it. And then they'd, I'd come out, they go in, and they make the arrest and cite and release, or they'd lock up the store and you know start the process there. And I was doing that all over. And then my friends were working at a movie theater in uh, Westminster, California, called uh, Edward Cinemas. And they were making $4.25 an hour. That was big money, right? And uh, one of these detectives came and says, hey, you want to make $10 an hour? I'm like, 10 bucks an hour? Who do I got to kill? I'll, I'll do whatever for 10 bucks an hour, right? And um, he says, I want you to sit in an Astro van outside of a house. And anyone that comes out of there, I want you to film them. So this is back in 1991. 90, yeah, 1991. So I sat in a Chevy Astro van with a big tripod with a VHS camcorder. If that tells you anything. I mean, these are things that you held, you know, you got on your shoulder big and um you're like the TV coming in up news crew guy yeah exactly exactly and uh i just just filmed people coming in and out and i was making 10 bucks an hour and i did good and i just kept doing it and then i turned 16 and it was like hey i could drive i mean i wasn't even old enough to be i wasn't even legally allowed to be doing what i was doing but i had these cops using me because i was cheap to do their their part-time pi gigs on the side right so i did that and uh worked my just 
got very well-rounded, left that, went into law enforcement, realized that wasn't the world for me, left law enforcement, came over back over here to the private sector, always been an entrepreneurial type. So I just, I wanted to learn all that I could learn. And I came in at, at a great time in history. And the reason is, is I came in young enough that I got to see how it was done before technology took over. But I was still young enough that I got to grow with technology in this business. So I got the best of both worlds, right? I can put my hat on and my shoes and I can go walk the pavement and I can get everything I need to get. Or I can just sit down on my computer and I can utilize technology that's there to get the other side. So what I see a lot now with investigators, as soon as that technology ends, the case is closed. It's over for them because they just don't know what to do at that point. And so you got to go hit somebody in my age group who understands both sides of it, but they better came into this industry pretty young. So while I was working my way up, I uh, I did it through the retail. I was a regional investigator for Lowe's. I traveled all up and down the West Coast doing internal theft and organized crime investigations. From there, probably one of the biggest growths that I ever had in my career while learning is I went to work for Hyundai, the car manufacturer for their finance division, and I was a skip tracer. So my job was to find the people and find their cars that they were intentionally hiding from the repo, man, so that we could recover those. I learned a lot. I learned what to do, what not to do. And I learned how to get back over on this side of the door before it got closed and I got caught on the other side, right? And that's where I learned that the skills I learned young combined with technology, because this at that point databases, there was one called DBT, data, uh, it was uh, database technologies. It was DOS operated and you paid by the minute. Uh, you know, it's no longer like that. You know, it was no pretty websites, nothing. It was just like enter information here and watch it come out and print it out. And it would print out on a dot matrix printer. So just really learned a lot there. Then, and I took those skills and I went over to the workers comp fraud area where I really honed in and learned to do surveillance and do insurance fraud investigations. And then when you do that, all those skip tracing and locating people abilities, that's when it all cashed in, right? Because I got to use it in the field in a different context. So now at this point in my career, I'm really able to start like a basket weave of all my skills that are just tying in to everything I have to do. And then from there, I joined a team. I went to work with an insurance company called Fireman's Fund. Fireman's Fund is a specialty insurance company They'll insure cargo, trucks, like big rigs, all the cargo that they're carrying, ships, heavy equipment, like earth movers, bulldozers, CAT, 64Ds, and all that fun stuff. So I went to work for them doing cargo theft investigations. It's a huge international black market, stealing heavy equipment, getting it into Mexico, going to the harbors of Mexico, getting it anywhere in the world, right? Same thing with all the cargo and everything. So I was investigating that and I got an opportunity to become a, a liaison for the insurance companies for a unit called Cargo Cats, like C-A-R-G-O and C-A-T-S. What that was, was a multi-law enforcement jurisdiction organization it involved the FBI, California Department of Justice, California Highway Patrol, LAPD, Long Beach Police, Long Beach Port Police, Orange County Sheriff's Department. And all they did was investigate theft that was concerning cargo, heavy equipment. So if it if it went by boat, plane, or rail, or truck, if it was hijacked, lost, 
stolen, whatever, we investigated it. And I was the guy who had all the unlimited insurance money and the skill sets that I brought to the table. I could get away with stuff that the law enforcement would have had to obtain a warrant for. And in some cases, they weren't ready to get a warrant or they didn't have enough information to get a warrant. So our information that I was able to obtain would then get them where they had to get to get their warrants. So in order to do that, you had to think outside the box, right? You can't just be a one way. This is how it's done. You can't just go online and put something into people's search or something like that and expect that's going to give you everything you have. You know, I've got databases. Some of them I pay a thousand dollars a month just to have access. That's not even using. That's just to have access. But the end of the day, that's just a tool. That's not how I do my investigations. It's a tool that says, okay, you know what? I can either go run over here and spend four or five hours trying to figure out, Brad, do your name, date of birth, social security number, and driver's license number. You'd be amazed what that does for me, right? Or I use my tools, my database, and I get that information in sometimes minutes, sometimes an hour. And I don't have to leave and go pound the pavement or call favors in or friends stuff, right? So that is legal. I can do that because since I am a licensed investigator, the, the laws that pertain to that, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, the Driver's Privacy Protection Act, um, we're exempt from, <laughs> from those laws. So, you know, I get pulled over and I got a notebook full of date of birth, social security number, driver's license numbers, which I do quite often. I don't get arrested. Somebody who's not exempt under that, you're going to get arrested, right? So we, we do have that privilege um, to get that in which comes responsibility, right? We just don't hand that information out. I'm going to ramble. You asked me to talk about what I do. I love what I do. So I can ramble all day, Brad. Uh, but just, just kind of wrap it up in a nutshell is that experience, the experiences I've had allow me to jump into pretty much anything in the investigation world. So let's talk about real estate, man. I mean, obviously you have like a crazy depth of experience and, and probably um, just some crazy stories as well. But in turn, like, so here's kind of what we deal with a lot is, uh, and me and Will and you were talking about this prior to, to, to this call just a little bit about, hey, I've got this seller, we're under contract, I'm set to close, they ghost me. And not, like we could go the attorney route, but one thing that I found is that sometimes it's better to go Polly's route. So like, in your opinion, what's the best way for us to handle that? Well, you know, I think every case has its own unique situation. So you have to look at that. Don't be so narrow-sighted, right? I mean, we got to look at things. We got to take our emotions out of everything. The minute that we allow our emotions to dictate us or tell us what to do, we lost. I don't care what happens in the end, you lost because you're going to make a bad decision or you're going to overlook something. So the first thing you got to do is just remove your emotions from it all together, right? Um and and think of all possibilities and think of that other person. How would you think if you were in their shoes? When we work a case, we always think, how can the other side discredit what we're doing? And we close those doors on them so they can't. And when you're negotiating with somebody, you need to do the same thing. If I was negotiating against me, where are my weaknesses? How am I going to shut myself down and make sure you have those doors closed? Right? So the question is, What's the best route to go? I, I guess each case is going to have its own unique challenges to it, right? Because, well, we, we got that case over in uh, Morgan County for you, 
You know, that, that classic case, what was I doing? I was facilitating trying to get papers filed and served and 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 track all that down because there was some miscommunications between attorneys and clerks and sheriff's department and everything. So it came to one of those, hey, someone's got to take charge of this instead of just 20, 20 Indians running around the camp and no one's acting as a chief. So Brad's like, hey, man, you're, you're good at this. Make this happen, Polly. So, okay, cool. And that's what I did, right? I went to sheriff's department, to court clerks, to judges' offices, and we end up getting these papers. I have papers in hand. It's like, boom, I'm going right to the house. I've driven this far, three and a half hours, I'm going to the house. So I get there, it's blocked off. I can't see anything because they've now, a gate that you could get through before, they've now welded this gate shut. It's like, all right, these people mean business. So what do I do? I go park right up the road, grab my drone. I mean, and just boom, throw it up in the air, go 400 feet. Don't see any cars. Get down a little bit lower, zoom in. Outside is completely trashed. Like these people are slobs. What are they doing? I look for another road or another way to get into the property. I can't see anything. There's no other ways. I'm like, surely these people are not going to weld their gate and lock them out from their property. And are they fortifying themselves in? They still got to go out and go to the store. So I tell Brad, hey, I don't know if they're here or not. We we don't see anything. So we go into the property. Don't go into the house, but go up to the property. It, it looks like it's abandoned. So I, I talked to Brad. I said, you know, let's see if we can't find them. We start working. We start finding them. Turns out they're living in a field in an RV. All right. So let me stop you there. How in the world did you find that out? Just by luck. I mean, just be honest with you. So here's here's what happened is I found some phone numbers and I was calling them looking for them. And I get one person is just like, nope, that's not them. And I said, oh, well, do you happen to know blah, blah, blah? Who is this? Innocent people don't say who is this. Guilty people say who is this, right? Think about it. You, someone calls you, you don't know, you're not going to get into it. You just get off my phone, man. I'm, I'm watching Jeopardy or doing something else, right? So, so you just kind of get rid of them. As soon as she said that, I knew she was a family member. She was too young to be our target, the lady, but, but I knew she was a family member. So I press her and I got her pissed off. Okay. uh, You you gotta go through that. So like you pressed her, she got angry. Like what happened? Well, she didn't want to tell me. So I just, I was like that little poking. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you type situation. Right. I'm pointing to the bottom of my monitors. If y'all can see down there, but so I just keep doing it till uh, I don't even remember everything I was saying. I just knew I wanted to make her mad because she was irritating me and stopping me from doing my job. And sometimes if I can get somebody to an anger point, they'll scream and cuss and give me what I want inadvertently, not realizing they're doing it. So, but this one, she didn't, she hung up the phone on me, but I knew she was a family member. And so I just started digging and looking for more phone numbers and probably, I don't know, maybe an hour into it. I found another phone number that the last digit was one digit off from hers. So I call it and it happened to be our target, the wife of the, the, the two people. Okay. I get her on the phone and I tell her I'm an investigator and I'm calling you about this property over on deer run. And she says, so let let me interject real quick. So like whenever you introduce yourself, you introduce yourself as I'm Paul, I'm an investigator. So like, does that, like summon up a certain amount of fear. It seems to me like that would be worse than a, an attorney call. It is. It is. It, it very well is. And and believe it or not, 
being a private investigator will hold a lot more fear in people than a police detective going. I 100% agree with that. And so I never, never pretend to be a police officer. We don't do anything because, you know, there's some people think, you know, I got to say I'm a cop or I got to make them believe I'm a cop because then they're going to want to cooperate. No, they're not. And let me tell you why being a PI works our advantage. If a cop were to come talk to you and you didn't do anything wrong, or if you did something wrong, what are you been taught since you were a little kid, TV, friends, whatever? What is the last thing you do when the cops come talk to you? Talk. The thing you do is talk. Don't talk to the police, right? And so I've taught that to my kids. You don't talk to the police, even if you're innocent, because they will flip it around on you. You know, I didn't know as a parent that was going to be used against me. I, you've never had your kid plead the fifth to you as a parent. Man, you're not doing parenting right. <laughs> but anyway, on the flip side of that, as a private investigator, at a show of hands, who here has dealt with a PI in the past? Who had a PI come to you? Who here knows a PI? Right. Some of you probably first time you ever met one is me. And you're like, like the Eminem commercial. Oh my gosh, with Santa Claus. Remember, he does exist and passes out. And Santa says they do exist, but the MMs would pass out. You remember that one, right, Brad? Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah. It's, it's a great so one. Yeah. When it comes to PIs, people are like that. Oh my gosh, you guys do exist. And then if I say, What's the first thing that comes to your mind? You're gonna say Magnum PI. Right. Older guys are gonna say Canon, Jake and the fat guy. You're gonna say something like that. But the fact of the matter is, is we have a mystery about us. Yes. And that mystery comes with a benefit of people want to talk because it's cool. I can't tell you how many times I hear, oh, you're a PI. Oh, I'd be a great PI. I'm so nosy. But don't ever say that to a PI, by the way. That's an instant credibility killer. But a great tool that we have is the unknown. They don't know what we can do. But what it, what the perception in people's mind of what we can do is what they see on TV. And it's everything that cops can't do, right? And and so we use that. I'll use that to my advantage all day long. I never tell people, oh, I can't do that. We can't do that. Because I want them to think that we can do that. I want them to think that we get to operate outside of the law, even though we don't. Now, we don't have restraints on us like law enforcement does, but... We don't operate outside of the law. We stay this side or else everybody gets sued or gets prosecuted, right? So that's always to our advantage. I, I always want to do that. So yeah, so when I do, I always say, yeah, my name is Paul Dillon. I'm an investigator. I'm calling you about the property over on Deer Run. Yeah, okay. So let me kind of uh, bring the the context to this. So uh, we bought a house years ago, sold it owner finance. The people, they probably did like, I don't know, 40-ish thousand dollars worth of work to the property, didn't pay the payment. And so I did two in-house refinances to keep them in the property. I was not trying to foreclose on this and they just kept defaulting. And so finally I foreclosed, I got title in my name. We never could get the people served with an eviction notice. And so you know, like enter into poly. So you had the conversation with wife at this point. So tell me about that. So the wife, she was interesting. Um, you know, I said, hey, look, I'm here to talk to you about this. I have some papers to give you guys. I got her to talk about, you know, they vacated the property, um, but they still had stuff there. They were mad and they were trying to find attorneys to sue Brad. And they they were talking about stuff that really wasn't even you. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind is the issues they were talking about was the title issue. It wasn't you. It was just whoever did the title didn't do the job right, probably. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm not going to tell them that. Right. I, I'm not there to be. 
I don't want them to think, or in this case, especially, I didn't want her to think that I was not there in her best interests. Because when she, for whatever reason, she wanted to start complaining, saying she wanted to sue you, you tricked her, you did this, you did that. And, and I know you, I know you're not going to do those things. So I'm just like, well, tell me more. Well, what happened? Well, how did this go? And, and I'm doing two things. One, I'm trying to gather information by getting her to talk to me. And I'm like, oh, no, really? He did that? No, there's no way he personally would do that. Maybe someone in his office did that. So I'm trying to maintain Brad's integrity that I know it, throw it on the myth, mythical person. I want to help validate her concerns because then she trusts me and she thinks I'm an ally. But then at the same time, I'm gathering intelligence. And that was this particular case. They were trying to find attorneys. They were literally going from Knoxville to Oak Ridge trying to find attorneys so they can come back and sue Brad. But all these attorneys were wanting $10,000, $20,000 retainers. And that told me they were talking to the wrong attorneys. And the attorneys they talked to didn't know, A, how to prosecute on this case and sue, or B, they knew they really didn't have a case. So they were just quoting them really high to go away. But nonetheless, it doesn't mean they weren't going to be able to find an attorney to make that happen. Yeah, someday they would have found someone. They would have found somebody. And right or wrong, if you wrestle with pigs, you get muddy. And you're going to end up spending money on an attorney anyway. So that's when I called you. I said, hey, we found them. Here's where they're living. Um, She's claiming she's got breast cancer. Her husband, he's driving his truck as a pilot for oversized loads over roads. So he travels all across the country. He, uh, his, both their vehicles are for out for repossession. They have no money now because I listened to them. They thought I was their ally. They thought I was going to advocate for them that they were telling me all their woes, but I'm gathering all this information. I'm taking notes. I'm writing down. It's like, Oh no, that's horrible. Yeah. Tell me more. Tell me more. So I go back to Brad and say, Hey, they're going to look for someone to sue you. And although you're not in the wrong it might be worthwhile just to at least get something out there so we don't have to, you know, you don't have to hire attorneys and get this property tied up and, you know, you can't sell the property, wherever the case is. So he says, you know what, man, it's it's worth 2,500 bucks. Make it go away. See what you can do. Well, I know Brad, if he tells me 2,500, he does not mean $2,500, right? So I go back there and I open the door with them and I'm like, I'm going to go really low. I'm going to go low and I'm going to make Brad laugh. And I did, I think I went like 500 bucks, Brad. And they were kind of offended, but I said, let me see. And I ended up getting to a thousand dollars. So they agreed for a thousand dollars. They would sign any claims and rights away. Now, would I have ever said, Hey, a thousand dollars, if they didn't tell me that they were living in an RV and a, and a, and a open piece of land that he was, hiding from his truck. So his truck almost got repossessed on him in, in Texas. And if you understand how repos work these days, have you ever seen those cars with cameras on them or the tow trucks? They just drive by, they get license plates. It runs it in a database for vehicles that are for repossession. And it's like a nationwide assignment thing now for how it's done. Yes. So he had to like fight so his truck wouldn't get repossessed. So that tells me they're desperate. They're really, really desperate. So that $1,000 was going to go a long way. So we threw it out there and they agreed to it. So you got a $15,000, $20,000 headache in attorney's fees and whatever time and money you would have lost from the sale of the house, that got diverted. 
right? Yeah, 100%. And so, like, here's the deal, guys. Like, what they were saying was that, oh, quote, unquote, I didn't know that we were buying the property subject to an underlying lien. Now, never mind that they defaulted and didn't make their payments. They feel like they've, they've been damaged because the lien was clouded, quote, unquote. The title was clouded with the lien. And so, Polly calls me and it's like, hey, I'm here. We found them. We got a little problem. And the problem was that the man's cousin was the judge. In oh, this I, yes. Yeah. He was the general Sessions judge, his cousin. Yeah. And so, like, if we go to court the first time, it's going to be in front of cousin. And we could probably, like, say, hey, we, we need to change a venue. They may deny it and probably will. And, you know, in, in other words, we would have lost at, at the, the general Sessions court. No, like certainly. And so Paulie was like, Hey, you know, what do you think? And I was like, Hey, 2,500 bucks to go away. I knew a hundred percent that he would have my back on this and that he wouldn't go like 2,500 to start with. And, you know, at a thousand bucks, you know, it's like, Hey, do, am I wrong? No, I'm not wrong. Like the paperwork is clear about what they've done. And the fact is they defaulted anyway. Right. So it's kind of a non-issue. It's like, what's their damage? Like there is none, but is it worth a thousand bucks to just get rid of all this? Yeah, it is. And so like, not only are they giving me a waiver and release of any claim, but they're giving me um, possession of the property, which is what I was trying to get in the first place. Well, you're so, going to save, you're going to save that thousand dollars just by not having your attorney go over there and do that unlawful detainer and remove them from the house. hundred percent. Yeah. So it was, it was worth it that in and of itself, but it's, it's the cost and now it's a cost benefit analysis, right? Does it make sense? And here's something I tell clients all the time when they call me is paranoia is expensive, but a peace of mind is priceless. And what I mean by that is when, if, if you were worried about them suing you and how much being sued was going to cost you, or if they actually found that attorney who didn't know what he was doing and thought he had a prepaid day, and so he goes and he represents them for a lot less or he takes it on a contingency, then, then you would have been up, man, I'm fighting this. How much money would you have lost because you had to redirect your attention to deal with that problem rather than helping people and mentoring people, rather than closing your own deals and making your deals or figuring out your next marketing strategy, right? Yeah. So that paranoia is expensive because you don't know what's going to cost you. But for a thousand dollars, you bought your peace of mind, you're, and you're and you're you're at peace with it. And now we get to sit here and laugh about it. <laughs> That's true, right? right? Keith in the chat says, "How much does something like this cost for your services?" In this example, in this particular case, I mean, if you want me to tell the numbers, I, I will on that particular one. Brad's either going to shove my house and kill me, or never use me again. But I did save you a lot of money and a headache. And there's a couple of There's something like that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a couple few grand. It really varies because there's been stuff I didn't even charge you for because it wasn't even worth my time to even write up an invoice, right? But I would say all in all, probably twelve to fifteen hundred on average. Yeah. So I mean, if we look back at everything we've done and we average, it's probably yeah. what it is. The problem with you know, this one was it was three hours away, so probably had three hours of drive time. You know, if we were multiple like, times, back and forth multiple times. Yeah. So, and I, my guess is he was pretty lenient on that. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I'm not, I don't nickel and dime people to death. I think anyone who knows me and done business with me, if, if I'm nickel and dime somebody, I do not like you. And you went way out of your way to make my life miserable. So I just don't nickel and dime people to death. 
You know, but but one of the things too, I think that that that's really important, Brad, and we kind of wanted to touch base is the importance of keeping a paper trail. Yeah, let, let's right? go into, into that. Let's let's go into that. So let's say that I'm an investor. I'm in kind of a, a tough situation. It's not. Let, let let's even say that I feel 100% certain that I'm right, but obviously the other side doesn't feel that way. So what can we do in terms of paper trail to make sure that we're taken care of? So uh, let me let me start this by saying we don't live in fear. We can't live in fear, but we have to protect ourselves, right? It's that old Boy Scout model, be prepared. So every deal you go into, go into it as if I'm going to end up in court. And I, and I know people say, oh, man, that's negative. That sucks. No, it's not. It's a positive thing because it's a lot easier to be prepared than to go back and say, I wish I was prepared or put the time and the money and the effort to go have to try to reconstruct something, right? Or put everything back together. So if you think I'm going to do this in the event of litigation, in the event of you inserted here, and that starts with your paper trails. If you're going to communicate with somebody, use email. That's one of the greatest ways. It's date and time stamped. It's beyond your control. You can't manipulate it or change it, right? Two, text messaging, same thing. You can't manipulate or change the time or the messages. Your phone bills back it up, even if someone figured out a way how to do it, right? And notes. So here's a really good thing. So a lot of times I'll tell clients when they're dealing with something is when you get off the phone with this person, shoot yourself an email. Write down and note your conversation and send that email and then save it in a folder on your email system. And here's why. The courts more and more and more, and I'm pretty sure it's across the country now because I'm seeing it in multiple states, they're allowing your notes to come into evidence if it's kept in in a chronological and systematic manner. So like even having a calendar and writing down your notes in a calendar, and you can look at it and see things were written at different times by the way somebody wrote, how their handwriting was, were they in a hurry or were they not? Was this, did they, you can tell if somebody went back and manufactured it basically. But when you do that, it brings a lot of credibility. And, and so imagine cases, and, and let me say this, and here's, here's where an important thing is. When you go to court, it's mudslinging. This person says A, or party A says this, party B says that, they're throwing crap back and forth. And the court says, you know what? Party A, you're a dirt bag. Party B, you're a dirt bag. Great. Which one of you do I like more? And that's the truth, right? Everyone's back and forth. So a lot of times we have a saying is, you know, you know the saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. Our, you know, our saying is he who comes to court with the most evidence wins. And we're a tiebreaker as a PI because you can go back and forth. The court's going to figure out which one of you two they like better to make it into, or you can come to court with evidence. You can come to court with documentation. You can come to court with something that's going to discredit this other person, right? To where you sway the court to say, oh, you know what? Maybe you're not a bad guy. Maybe, you know, I feel sorry that you had to deal with this other bad guy. And a lot of times, you know, if you can show you were ethical and here's my emails and communications, here's my text messages with this person. Look how long I spent on the phone talking to this person. It's a... A few seconds to send that email, guys, a minute to to take a screenshot and email it or whatever the case is, will save you more time and more headache down the road. And in states like Tennessee, we're a one-party consent state. I can record a conversation. 
So if I'm going to be making certain promises to you, or we're going to have certain things, and I want there to be a record, I'm going to record that conversation. I don't have to tell you it's being recorded. Now, if I'm talking to somebody like someone in California, I have to tell them because they're in California. California is a two-party consent state. And federal law says whatever state has the stricter recording laws, you have to follow, right? But, you know, I can't tell you how many times as an investigator I've recorded my conversation with someone I'm interviewing. And when they say that wasn't said, we're able to play that recording back. What, what do they do at that point? So they're on the stand. They said, I never said that. You played the tape. What do they do? So a lot of times what will happen is the attorney will say, um, like, let's say it's the other side. It's their witness. So they give their testimony to come in. They'll do their cross-examination. They'll say, well, did you ever say this? Did you have this conversation? No, that never happened. Okay. They'll say, Your Honor, we're done, but we want to reserve the right to call him back as, as a witness again. The court will say, yeah, absolutely. Then we come in. So then we have to authenticate it, right? So we got to come in and say, this is who we are. This is what we are hired to do. This is what we did. And the attorney say, well, did you have a conversation with you know, Mr. Smith? Yes, we did. During that conversation, what was said? So we'll go over it all. Did you record that conversation or have any recordings of it? As a matter of fact, we do. Do you have those with you today? Yes, we do. And then it'll get played as evidence. And then it goes in. Well, that person's either not in the courtroom or they are in the courtroom if it's they're a plaintiff. And then when they're done with me, their side will come try to cross-examine me. And it always fails because they're trying to get that evidence out and they try everything. It's never worked once in my whole entire career. I'm 45. I've been doing this since I was 14. You do the math. So then when I'm done testifying, the attorney will call that person back. And now they're either going to perjure themselves and, and just die on the cross, or they're going to admit that that happened. Interesting. So, Interesting. Yeah. So they're right, going to so get, get taken to task one way or another. Yeah. So let's talk about negotiation. I mean, what do you see is your role in our world as a negotiator? And when should someone reach out to you? So my, my assumption is, like, if if I have a deal that has, like, like Will has right now, where, where the seller won't talk to us anymore, I feel pretty good about calling Polly and having Polly be a third party. We've had situations where we can't find an heir or we can't find an ex-wife that needs to deed the husband or those kinds of things like that. These are things where we have absolutely used Polly to help us with. But like, what do you feel your role is? And then also, what do you see in terms of the negotiation on what we do? Um, our, our role definitely is is the things you've talked about as far as having to find people, trying to get somebody to sign something. Like in that case, at that Kentucky property, she was ordered to sign it. She wasn't going to sign it. And it was us going out there and actually befriending her, being friendly and joking with her that she willingly signed everything, right? As a matter of fact, I think we had a check for her too, and we didn't end up having to give her that check. Yeah, right. We didn't have to because she signed it, right. Yeah. So I I think that the the negotiation, I guess a really good thing to say is it sells. Everything is sells. I was explaining to you and Will, it's all sells. It doesn't matter if you're trying to beat out your competitor wholesaler and get a property. It doesn't matter if I'm trying to sell a car, sell a house, if I'm trying to get my kids to go to bed at a certain time, it's it's Grant Cardone says it. He says it best, right? It's all a sell. You're either selling somebody or you're being sold. Period. Right? I'm either selling my kid on it's time to go to bed or my kid's selling me on the fact that it's not time to go to bed. And if he doesn't go to bed, I bought, he sold. Right? Period. That's how it goes. So 
negotiations is exactly that. I enjoy it, man. You know, it's we all like to be sold, as I was telling you and Will. And, and if you don't think you like to be sold, go somewhere where they don't help you at the retail store and they're not selling you and watch how quickly you get offended. Right? That's, just very That's just how it is. So when I'm negotiating, my emotions are completely removed from it. And I want that person to know I have their interests at heart. And I genuinely care about people. That's the thing. I love to talk to people. I want to hear your stories. It's cool. People are fascinating. They're interesting. We've lost that in our society, right? We've lost that desire to sit down on the on the public square and smoke a cigar and and have a drink and talk to each other and just learn. I mean, that's Brad. That's how we really got to know each other. That's right. Yeah. Right. I mean, how many deals have been worked out at, at, at um, Liquid Smoke uh, or uh, at the Humidor? Yeah, that's right. Right. Is you take that time, you get to learn, you get to know somebody, and you build that rapport fast. You guys, if you do that, you're. It's not just the art of the negotiation. You're going to realize how greatly that's going to impact your business. You know, I got burnt out in the PI world. I left for two years. You remember this, Brad. I, I went into insurance, life insurance sales. I killed it. I killed it because at first I struggled. And then I realized I had commissions, Brad. I just wanted to get sales to make money. And, and I reconnected with people. And the minute I started having conversations with people, I became friends. I was eating dinner with them. I was closing deals. I was walking out of houses with $2,500 commission checks. So I, I think that the, the negotiating side of it is people don't care what you know until they know how much you care about them. And people feel they're about to give up their home. You're rescuing. A lot of them you're rescuing, but there's still an emotional attachment to that. There was an emotional attachment when they bought it, and there's an emotional attachment when they leave it. Yeah. And so you got to listen. My grandmother used to tell me all the time when I was a kid, you got two ears and one mouth and that's for a reason. And I need to learn finesse. I'm like, finesse, that's a hair shampoo. What do you mean I need to learn finesse? But what she was telling me all around is you need to really just soften yourself up. You got to learn how to talk to people, listen to them, right? And watch their body actions. Listen to how they're talking. You know, um, when I was, was in the, the police academy, and, and I was working for a department. This was a time back in the 90s when uh, verbal judo was a really big thing. And verbal judo was how I can de-escalate a situation all about how I talk, all about how I respond and how I do it, right? So people are very keen to catch in on sudden changes. But people don't catch in on subtle changes. Remember that, that old saying about a frog, right? How do you fry a live frog? You put him in a cold pan, then you turn the heat on. His body's going to adapt to the heat in the frying pan. And then he's not even going to know that he's being fried or he's being boiled in the water. And I don't know if you noticed, but I've been pretty vocal and loud while I'm talking. But all of a sudden, I started getting a much softer voice and my words are getting much softer. Right? I don't know if you caught that. That was just a subtle thing that I did throughout this. But what I've done with that, I guarantee you, is if... if you weren't paying attention to what I was saying then. You're definitely paying attention to what I'm saying now because I lowered my voice. I lowered the way I talk. All of a sudden, the guards that you have in the back of your head, oh, yeah, I see this guy. He's just trying to get this out of me. How is he going to screw me over? Now you're so intent on listening to what I said because I just changed the way I'm talking very slowly. You forgot those. Your guards are down. 
And then now what's going to happen is we're going to start talking about personal stuff. And I'm going to build a very quick report within a couple few minutes, five minutes max. If you haven't built that personal report in five minutes, you got to learn how to do it. Yeah, that, that's right. And and tonality, you know, th- this has been proven many, many times with studies, you know, tonality and body language is most of communication, not the words that come out. So last question for you might be a little strange, but it seems to me like you have probably dealt with a lot of irate people. So how do you deal with an irate person? If I didn't have somebody pissed off at me every day, I wouldn't know I wasn't doing my job right. You know, it just seems I just, I have angry, angry people for coffee. I don't know. You know, when I was younger, I wanted to engage that. I wanted to be in that fight. You want to MF me, I'll MF you back. It's We're just going to go back and forth, right? It's not that way anymore. Because if if I take it personal, I lose my cool. If I lose my cool, they win. They've robbed me of my happiness. They robbed me of my joy. They robbed me of my intellect. And, and you don't you don't want to lose those things. You want to keep those things. Because what happens if they take your joy, you hate your job. If they take your intellect, you don't have the mindset to be able to close the deal. You got to keep your emotions out. They have their emotions. That's why they're mad. That's why they're upset. They're getting rid of a piece of property, something they have an emotional attachment to. So listen to them. If this lady... Over in, in which call it with that deer run property, she yeah. was mad and she wanted to be heard. Yeah, I could have taken a personal, ma'am, ma'am. That's not why I'm calling you. That's not my problem. I just got to get these papers to you so you can go to court and you can answer why you're being a deadbeat and not paying and you've already been foreclosed on and you're not getting out of the damn house. What would have happened with that? Would I have been right to say that? Well, it's the truth, but it wouldn't have got me anywhere. Yeah. It just would have given her more resolve to go to Nashville and find an attorney to sue you, right? <laughs> but instead, I listened to her. She wanted to be heard. I heard her. I validated her concerns. I didn't have to say she was right, but I just listened. That sucks. I'm sorry that you went through that. I validated her concerns. She opened up more. Look where we got with that. Yeah. It, it was a big win, I think, on both sides. And really, frankly, all three sides. They're going to get more money than they would have fight me and all that because they would have lost. Yeah, I'm okay to give them a grand. So let's open open this up for Q and A. We've been going about an hour, and so I want to start with Will and then Raf. So, Will, what's on your mind, fella? I've got an opportunity that fell apart that I would love to resurrect. I don't know if this is kind of within the scope. Situation is lady calls and says she wants to sell her house and uh, basically has an abusive ex-husband that lives on the property next door. And she calls me and says, hey, can we schedule this? I'm going to take the kids in the middle of the night and go. And I was like, can we come out there and do an inspection? Can we see it? She said, no, they monitor the property. Nobody can come. She's like, we are not safe here. So I'm like, I kind of got an emotional investment in this point. And right. I'm like, all right, one, I want to buy the house. I think it's an entrepreneurial opportunity, but two, that's a bad situation to be in. And if I could bring value to this, I'd love to help. So we've got closing day scheduled. We do a virtual zoom tour. I feel comfortable with the property and the numbers and we've got closing scheduled. So she packs up the kids, leaves, hits to an unknown destination. We still text, no idea where she is. And at closing, well, like three days prior, 
closing company says, um, you know, hey, Mr. Cannon, uh, she's not legally divorced. They're separated, I guess, but they're not legally divorced. So we can't act. She doesn't have the full right to sell you the property without the husband's signature. So I reached back out to her and I'm like, hey, I thought you said you were divorced. You had an abusive ex-husband. She said, well, like we're separated, but we just never went through the whole thing. And I'm like, well, it's a big problem, right? Because now you can't sell it because you don't have the full right to sell it. And I'm like, can we call him? Can he sign the paper? She's like, hell no, he'll never do it. No way, no way in hell will he sell it. And so this property is literally just sitting there vacant and she's God knows where and didn't get any money for it, took the kids and the husband, I guess, and family live somewhere nearby. And I have no idea what the story is. I just kind of let it go. It's like, all right, well, that one didn't work out. That stinks. But is that something where it's like, can we talk some sense into the husband and be like, hey, man, you know, here's the reality. This house is just sitting here. You know, I, I don't know if they went back over there. And t- I have no idea. Honestly, I've lost touch with it. But this was just a couple months ago. And uh, I, I just didn't know if that's kind of like within the scope of scenarios where it's like, hey, well, yeah, maybe if we just talk to him, we'll get the paper signed and we'll close it. So let me let me start by saying a couple things there. Every state has a thing called ATROS, A-T-R-O-S, Automatic Temporary Restraining Orders. ATROS, remember, just remember that nickname or the acronym. So what that says, the second you file for divorce, there's a restraining order that automatically goes in place that says you can't disperse, destroy, or get rid of any assets or go incur any debts. So if there's a property, even if both of them agree to sell that property, they still got to get permission from the court to sell it, or they're both going to be in violation. At the end of the day, they didn't have a legal right to sell that property because they were restrained by a court order. It's literally in every divorce. It's what stops the spouse A from going and selling all of the property because they're getting, they just got served with papers and they'd rather sell it and hide the money. Right. So it's what stops that. So if my wife and I were going through a divorce and she sold you my property or sold property that I had an interest in, bet your bottom dollar, I'm going to unwind that whole entire deal and counter sue you for fraud because you should have done your due diligence. So always make sure what I would do in that situation is I would ask for a copy of their divorce records. And always look at the initial petition and look for those atros, those automatic automatic temporary restraining orders. The other side to that is those records typically are public records um, for divorces. Go look. Maybe he's not. Maybe she's that person. Maybe she just is playing the victim here. You never know. He could be very violent and controlling. I, I see it so many ways. I never just take it for face value, Right. Because here's my deal. If she really, truly was afraid of him, she wouldn't be living next door. Just wouldn't be happening, right? She would have been up and gone and out of there. Um, Which I guess I think she said she was going to leave in the middle of the night, right? So maybe that is the case. Talking to him, maybe you talk to him without letting him know that you spoke to her. Hey, I'm interested in that party and in the house over here. And it shows you're an owner. And, you know, kind of found you and looked you up and found you. Would you be interested in selling that? Maybe the guy's going to be like, heck yeah, I will. Let's get that woman out of there. Because if he is the abusive person, maybe he wants to sell it to get her away from that. Right? Mm-hmm. And then, so you get him to agree. You get her to agree. Get the order. Get one of them to get their attorney to submit the order and get it signed off. If they're both agreeing it, the court will sign off on it. Right? And then there you go. That's the route I would take. So, Paulie, do you feel comfortable being the liaison between that? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't bother me. I absolutely could. I mean, does that is that an investigator role? No, it's not. But I mean, that's that's definitely a role that it's just a negotiation role. Yeah. And and and, and here's the thing, guys. Like Paul has helped me on things where it's not really like he's not investigating, but he's just being that person that's good with people and understands how to read body language and read tone and be that person that can like not be me, you know, and that's okay. That's a good thing. So Will, does that kind of help? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think one, it's a great idea. And two, it's just great to, uh, you know, have connected with a resource. Cause I mean, I think there's infinite use cases just in the limited amount of time I've been doing this where it's like, you know, even the one that we were talking about before the call, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, just someone with a unique skill set that, you know, who do you call? Like you said, you don't really want to call the attorney because you start at four figure retainer. And then I just found out this week that that burns up pretty quick. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's really great to, but it is very helpful. Very cool. All right, cool. All right. We're going to go to Raf. Raf had a question about dealing with tough negotiation situations. So the, the question that I, I'm asking the question, um, Paul, just to have uh, just one extra tool in the toolkit, because I mean, you're a professional and you seem like you're an expert at dealing with these tough situations. For me, because I think we all dealt with like these very difficult, high energy personalities at one time or another. I'm wondering, is there anything that you do when you get to that point where you, you, you know, you normally don't get upset. But at this moment, this particular person has brought you, has took you there. And now you, you know you now have to remove that emotion so you can handle it objectively. Do you have some type of technique attack that you use to, to make sure you are removing that emotion before you say your next word? Yeah. So if I find myself getting frustrated with somebody, I tend to just stop and sit back and be quiet. So what does that do for you and do for the other person? One, it allows me to grab my emotions. Two, it makes them start wondering why I'm being quiet. What am I thinking? Right. If I can redirect them, there's a saying in sales the first person to speak loses. So, if we're negotiating, when I did, did life insurance, I'd stare at somebody. I didn't care if it was five minutes. I'd just stare at them and not say a word. And usually, if it got that long, it ended by both of us laughing. Right. But it was if I'm going to put something out there and you're going to stop, then you're going to think about it or you're going to want me to think you're thinking about it, you're not going to do it. They're expecting me to start talking so that I can convince them why. And all I'm going to do is build their resolve on why they're not going to. So I'm going to stop. And at this point, they think I'm doing a takeaway. I'm going to take away what I offered. And all of a sudden, I've been there that long. is because they are interested and they want it, right? So they're just upset. They're just upset because they're emotional. This is an emotional deal you guys are doing. Yeah, You can't allow your emotions in it. And what do you do to not allow your emotions in? It's discipline, man. Discipline. That's all it is. You got to discipline yourself to realize this isn't personal. This is personal for them. And I'm going to be their friend and I'm going to listen to them. But it's not personal for me. Because there's a deal. Some do, some don't. So what? If you're wasting your time somewhere, better off to find out now and cut the rope and get on to the next deal than to spend all kinds of time here and be robbed out from five or six more deals, right? It's a numbers game. You want to get those numbers, you want to run those numbers. The longer I'm here dealing with this person's emotional breakdown and I'm only fueling it by having one back to them, I lost. So if I find myself getting frustrated, I'll just shut up and I will let you ramble and ramble and ramble while I calm down, then you know what? 
Maybe I need to start changing the way I'm talking to you. Change the tone in my voice. Start going from being up here and elevated and talking, oh my gosh, to now I'm down here. So as my voice starts lowering, my tone starts lowering, my words start getting a little drawn out, maybe that little cage inside of me starts coming out and I start talking a little funny. And and you know what? They're now trying to concentrate on what I'm saying, how I'm saying it, and what silly word I just said, right? And so what happens with that is now you're taking their emotions from way up here and you're bringing it down here. That goes circle back to the verbal judo. Right. When we go into a domestic violence situation, husband and wife are throwing stuff at each other and you roll up and the husband's standing outside buck naked because the wife locked him out and they've been fighting and he's screaming, yelling and cussing. You get her to open the door. She's screaming, yelling and cussing. What am I going to do? Scream, yell and cuss? Just be the third buffoon. Right. (laughs) No, I want to get get them separated. I'm going to get him calmed down while I'm laughing in the back of my head because he's outside naked. And then uh, and my partner's going to be over there dealing with her, getting her calmed down so we can get the naked husband back in the house so he's not naked outside, right? Got to keep control of those emotions, guys. I, I don't know what to say. That's it. You know, good question. You know, how do you get to that practice every time that it you lose your cool with somebody or you get emotionally involved? Stop. Take a breather. Go Go have a cup of coffee. Do something. And then go back and write down what happened and how you could have handled it different. And then keep that. Don't just write it down and through it. Keep a journal right on the front of it. What could I have done different? And then and then just index it. Like I got to know, I, I, a lot of times um, I'll write things down, right? Um, just, just sometimes I can't formulate what I'm thinking. So I'll just write a note down. Well, I have this notebook. It's, it's a leather bound by a company called Skyler Bibles. And it's got an index. And it's got one, whatever, whatever number it is. And then I can write down whatever page I started on. So I'll write something down, you know? So like this case, say, how could I have handled this differently? So I'll title it screaming, being screamed, yelled and cussed at. And then, you know, page five. So you go to page five and write down whatever it was that I did and how it went and how I could have handled it different. All right. A couple last things, man. So one question that I've had is like, what is it that you can't find out about somebody? So you have a case to deal with somebody. What can you do and not do? I can't force anybody physically, obviously, right? I don't mislead people in the sense of frauding them. You never win when that happens because it's always going to get exposed and it's always going to cost you a lot more. And you'd be amazed how many people will respect you just because you were very upfront and honest with them. And especially... In a business, well, let's just put it this way. I think we can all responsibly say there's a lot of people in this business of buying houses that are uh, not ethical. 100%. Yeah, right. 100%. And in a world where people are unethical, when you're ethical, it stands out. Yeah. Just period, right? And I'm a victim of this. And and it's on my last nerve. I get these recordings and I get people calling me all the time for a property I don't even freaking own, wanting to buy this property from me. Oh, yeah. So you can imagine if I wanted to sell and I had a uh, wholesaler come to me, I'm going to have a pretty bad taste in my mouth right out of the gate, right? Because this is what I've just been harassed with. So in a world of unethical behavior, be the person with the ethics because you're going to stand out a whole lot more. 
So we can do anything legally. And, and you'd be amazed what that can do. You'd be amazed what knocking on someone's door and talking to them will do, right? Now, we're not the one we just go knock on somebody's door and be like, hey, you want to sell the property? Guys, that's your job, not mine. It's not going to be pretty if I did it, right? Because that's not what we do. Now, in Will, your case, with that one property where the guy ghosted you, heck yeah, that's a perfect time for us to go talk to him. Because that guy's that guy... I promise you there's someone else behind that scene pulling the puppet strings. And that guy just needs to realize he breached a contract. He breached an agreement. And the person who did it just only wanted to use him to make money. It doesn't care if he gets sued or not because they're making their money and walking away and watch how that one unfolds. Right. You'd be amazed when that happens. And you know what? The fact that I'm an investigator is going to bring a lot of weight to that comment. And then maybe we got to figure out who that person is too before we go talk to them. You just never know. So intelligence is everything. Intelligence is going to get all the answers. It's going to get everything you want, everything you need. So we build that intelligence. I think that's a a good place to leave it for today. So Paulie, man, for those that are looking out for you, how can people reach out to you and get help? Sure, absolutely. Let me, I'm going to put my cell phone number up here. It's 615-624-0030. 615-624-0030. You can text me. You can call me. Be sure to tell me who you are. I get blind messages all the time. I don't know who it is. And it makes me feel dumb that I'm like, um, I think I might have not saved your name or whatever the case is. So just tell me who you are, how you heard of me or whatever. Can answer questions. You guys want help? We're here. We can help. I'd give my email, but chances are I'm going to miss it. So yeah, I'm going to text messages only Tom it's with uh, Facebook messages with me. So, um, you know, <laughs> i never catch Facebook messages, man. I posted on my page. Like I do not read DMS and still it's like 30 a day. So, uh, apologize for anybody that's been the, the victim of that. Seriously, guys, Paulie's one of the best in the business. He's super great at what he does and I highly recommend. So plug that into your cell phone. 